The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Turn with me, if you would, to Titus chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start in verse 11. <clears throat> and we are continuing this week our journey uh, verse by verse through the book of Titus. And uh, as you do that and turn to Titus, uh, I just want to say thank you to anybody that is a veteran or their families who may be with us here today. Uh, I realize that as we often do in America, Many of you will celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow by partaking in the ancient and time-honored tradition of subjecting raw meat to an open flame. And to this, I say, amen. Uh, If you read the Old Testament, God is a big fan of barbecue, so that is an undeniable fact. Uh, And here, for whatever reason, in Southwest Ohio, we will also play uh, beanbag toss, but for some reason call it cornhole. Uh, I haven't figured that one out yet. Um, and all of that is cool, and, and I praise God for a day of rest. For many of you, I know they're few and far between, and so I'm thankful for that. Uh, but I would also encourage all of you in the midst of all the festivities to stop and pray for those families who have shared in the sacrifice uh, of soldiers who have died for this country, whether it be living or in the past, because that's a high price to pay. Um, and, and I don't I should realize I'm not ignorant. I, I do realize today that there are two ends of the spectrum, and potentially even in this room, uh, there may be some of you here that are so patriotic that they have forsaken their first allegiance to Jesus. It's possible to be so pro-America, right? You, you know, you might have two tattoos, one's American flag and one's a cross, and that flag is way bigger, right? Um, it's possible to be over-patriotic and get that out of balance and your allegiance and, and your first love not be right. Um, but some of you could be so anti-America that in your opinion, there should never be a celebration for those who have given their life uh, in the wars that America's fought, or any war for that matter. The reality and the cold hard truth is a lot of people shed blood for you to even be able to have and express that opinion out in the open, and so you ought to be thankful, whether you agree with every war or not. Uh, some are over-patriotic, to be sure. I realize that's possible. But some are so anti-America that they lose potential for gospel influence here. Acts 17 says that God himself appoints the times and places where we live, and thus the times and places where he's put us on gospel mission. So if you are a Christian and you're here right now, then you are called to live out <clears throat> and share the gospel in this context. This America whether you like all of it or a little of it or none of it, right? Uh, And if you hate America, it's very hard to reach any people with the love of God when you've decided you hate them, okay? So just a little bit of a balanced way to think about it. Uh, If Memorial Day is about remembering men and women who laid down their life for their family and friends, uh, we are told by Jesus himself in John 15 that there is no greater expression of love than that. And so I think it's worth celebrating. So eat your ribs, eat your chicken, throw your bean bags, but also stop and pray and thank God. I think it was General Patton that said, we sh- it'd be foolish for us to mourn that, that men like this died. We should thank God that men like this lived. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to read uh, <clears throat> Titus 2, and we're going to start in verse 11, okay? 
For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Okay? Uh, like I said, we're doing verse by verse, uh, expositional journey here, so let's go back to verse 11 and start taking this apart. Uh, for the grace of God has appeared, we're in verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. Okay? Uh, this needs to be said first, that Paul was not a universalist. And what I mean when I say that is, Paul, by saying here that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, he is not saying that what Jesus did somehow de facto brought salvation to every single person that would exist, right? Uh, that can't be the case. That would be a stark contradiction to what the rest of the Bible says. So what, what is he saying? Because if you kind of just read that verse, it would, it would seem like that's what he's saying. But um, as is often the case with people that struggle to understand what verses mean and end up over in heresy... They just forget the verses above. And so this reference to uh, all men, <clears throat> that, he's, uh, that, the gra- that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, you have to read the verses above to understand what he's talking about. He just went through older men, younger men, older women, younger women, bond slaves, right? So what he's saying is, regardless of age, race, social class, the grace of God has brought salvation to all men, all different kinds of people that there is no exclusion. It's not going to be works for some people and grace for others that salvation has been brought through the finished work of Christ. Grace has been made available to all different types of people. That's what the all is describing there, okay? Um, And aren't you glad today that the grace of God has been manifested in the person and work of Jesus? If it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have anything to sing about, nothing to talk about, and I'd be sitting at home holding my knees, rocking, crying back and forth because this world's crazy. But because of the grace of God, I have hope today and joy in my heart. We're going to keep pushing forward on mission. Amen. Okay, verse 12 uh, says, Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Okay? So this says that grace instructs us. I think that's interesting. I'm not sure we often think of grace as a teacher, but here we see that it is. Um, I think we've all heard the language that the law was a tutor. Right? Hebrews tells us that. It was a bit of a hard tutor. The law was a hard-nosed teacher, right? Um, but that was needed to show us our utter inability to be righteous on our own. That was a lot of what the law did. It was a tutor to show us, you're not going to be able to do it. Um, I saw one commentator that referred to grace on the other hand, like on the other side of the spectrum, as a gentle schoolmistress teaching us the things required for obedience. Um, I think some believe the law was a stick and that grace is a carrot. Before I go any further, does everyone understand the stick and the carrot analogy? Has everyone heard that before? Okay, so just for, like, back in the day when, you know, the main mode of transportation was an animal, a lot of times that would be a donkey or some other stubborn animal that would need motivation to move. There's this analogy used, well, you can use a stick, which means you're beating the beast to get it to move. Or you can use a carrot, right? You've all seen a picture of a cartoon or something with a stick and a string and the carrot's just out in front and that's making the uh, animal move, right? Um, 
So the, the debate is what works better, a reward or beat that thing till it decides to move. So I think some of us believe the law was a stick just beating us and the grace is a carrot, kind of a reward. I, I don't think that's true. I think both the law and grace have a carrot. It's the order of disbursement that makes them different. I'll explain what I mean when I say that. The law said this, trust and obey, and I'll give you a carrot, right? Here's the question, though. How many times did everyone under the law, or you and me for that matter, trust and obey perfectly? How many times did anybody anywhere trust and obey perfectly? For a whole day, even. What about a whole hour? It's stretching it. (laughs) It's tough. I might do 10-minute stretches on good days, right? Where all of my thoughts and all of my actions and all of my words are aligned um, with the glorious intention of of God, my King. I want to get better, but um, the bottom line is what we learned from that is that if, if getting the carrot was based on us, we would have extremely poor eyesight. You guys are not good at science, are you? See, carrots are good for eyesight. They have beta carotene in them and also vitamin A. Okay, so that helps with eyes, all right? I'll say it another way. Uh, Here's what we learned. We learned we'd never get the carrot, right? That's the bottom line. If it was up to me, trusting and obeying perfectly, that's how I get the carrot, what do I have? I got no carrot ever because I'm not going to pull that off, right? And the law taught me that very well. Thank you, law. That's a hard lesson to learn, though. So the law was a tutor, but it taught a real bummer lesson, Okay. Grace, on the other hand, says this. Remember, law is trust and obey, I'll give you the carrot. Grace, on the other hand, says, here's the carrot. I'm giving it to you because I love you, not because you deserve it. And when someone is willing to be that good and loving to you, it should make you want to trust and obey them. See the difference? We must remember that the grace of God is what allows us to be partakers of the life of Christ. Uh, I quote Tim Keller as he said, the Christian life is not less than obeying the law, but infinitely more. We see that when um, instead of trust and obey, then you get the carrot. What God does instead is says, I love you so much, you're pitiful, you're never going to be able to get it if that's the case. So here, I'm going I'm to do whatever's necessary to give you the carrot up front. And then out of a response to how good I've been to you, Right? We've got to understand, this may be not be so motivating if we're talking about carrots. Maybe you don't even like carrots, but here's the carrot in this situation. The carrot in this situation is right standing in relationship with the God that made you, that you never would have attained if it was up to you. Because God is totally perfect, and what is required to be in relationship with him is complete perfection. All of us have fallen short of that bar, and all of us are in serious trouble. If the carrot in the situation is restoration of relationship... It could never, ever work if it was up to me to trust and obey perfectly to get that done. And so what he had to do is say, okay, I'll go first. Here's the carrot. Now, what do you want to do because I gave you this when you didn't deserve it? What do you want to do now that because of grace and mercy and my great love for you, I've given you the opportunity to be in relationship with me when you didn't earn it yet? What does that make you want to do? It should make you want to serve him. And it changes everything. It changes the motivation all the way down to the heart. It changes why we do what we do, not just what we do. How many of you know that's important? You can do the right thing for the wrong reasons, man. It's the wrong thing all day long. What's flowing up out of here, the reasons we do what we do matter. And grace allows us to have pure motives. It allows 
our good works to be an outworking and an outflow of the love that's been extended to us, the grace and mercy that's been given to us. This is beautiful. This is what, why Christianity is different than every other religion. That's why people, I, I don't want to be disrespectful, but they don't know what they're talking about when they say, well, all religions are the same. No, they're not. Not at all. Because every other religion, that carrot is still way out there on the pole, and you've got to run and chomp and try to get that thing. Or, or some religions are a stick. Not Christianity. God said, here, I'm going to give you what you need. I'm going to give you what you need because I love you. I'm going to extend mercy and grace to you. I'm going to forgive you. You haven't, you haven't earned it. Now what? I, want to, I love him. Man, I want to serve him. And I want to obey him. It's wonderful. I don't have to do good things to get God to love me, do I? I get to do good things because he loved me. And that, my friends, changes everything. There seems to be three effects here of the instruction of grace upon us. We see um, these effects are denying, living, and looking. Okay? The first uh, we find in uh, verse 12, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Right? So we see, first of all, that grace instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Um, the question is, but how? Right? How do we do that? How does, it, how does it go for you? I'll ask you this question. Is knowing that you should do something or not do something always enough for you to choose the right action? Just, just the knowledge of it. Somebody just lets you, I mean, we, we know, don't we? A lot of times. I should do this, but I'm not gonna, right? <laughs> Many times it's not that out front in the open, but, you know, normally we're better at justifying it, figuring out a way to make ourselves feel good about it long enough to get the deed done, and, and then we feel bad about it, right? Um, so simple knowledge, if, if, if all grace did was alert us to the fact of what we should do and not do, that would not be enough, uh, Unless my experience is unique, but I don't think so. So the answer is, how do we do that? How do we deny ungodliness and worldly desires? The answer is, by the power of the Holy Spirit. If the grace of God has not been released upon us by the selfless sacrifice of King Jesus, our Savior, then we would not have any hope of obeying the lessons that grace teaches us. Right? So here the scriptures are telling us, grace teaches us, deny ungodliness. Deny worldly lusts. But the question is, and how, how does that happen? Well, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, which was released to us because of the grace extended to us, right? We could not have been indwelt by God's Holy Spirit in our wretched state, in our unforgiven state, right? God had to come and change us and make us a suitable dwelling place, the, the New Testament temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm real thankful for that. I could have never obeyed any of the lessons grace would teach me without his help, um, and the the truth is, the only bone I have to pick with Memorial Day is that it's too close to a day of what I believe much greater significance. Uh, does anybody here know what the church has traditionally celebrated on this day? Pentecost. Pentecost. So what is that? What is Pentecost? Uh, I mean, no disrespect to Memorial Day when I say that, but Pentecost was more important. Like in the grand scheme of all things that have ever happened, this was a big deal. Okay? So here's what Pentecost is. Um, it, is, it is the fulfillment of two promises, is what Pentecost was, right? So um, the event is when 
the apostles are in the upper room, right? We've got a mighty wind. We've got flames of fire, right? We see this is the initial pouring out of God's Spirit. This is, this is the fulfillment of two different promises. One was in Joel 2.28, where he says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Uh, and the other one uh, is in the New Testament, where Jesus says he will send another counselor, the Spirit of truth. That's in John 16. So we see two promises fulfilled on this day of Pentecost. And this is the beginning of men having the ability, men and women having the ability to be indwelt and filled by God's Spirit. This is where, this is where we went from Jesus walking on the earth, um, being Emmanuel, God with us. That was pretty cool, right? Jesus came and was with us. Jesus came and experienced humanity on our behalf. God came and walked among us. That is beautiful. God with us. We celebrate that at Christmas time. This is the next step. This is where it went from God with us. Jesus lives a perfect life. He dies in our place for our sins, and then he rises from the grave. He ascends, and then he fulfills the promise that he tells us in the book of John. He sends us a helper, his very Holy Spirit, and instead of God being just with us, now God is in us. Pentecost is a big deal. (laughs) This is a big deal when it comes down to um, days to recognizing our legacy, right? For the church, that's a big deal. None of us ever would have been able to obey the instructions that grace teaches us without the help of the Holy Spirit. We would not have the help of the Holy Spirit had Jesus not finished his work at Calvary. And so Pentecost for us is a really good day. We should cook meat on this day too. Amen. We need the Holy Spirit's help to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. This is true uh, not only because it's hard and we're rebellious half the time or more. Okay, just me. Uh, not just because of that, but because it is not always obvious uh, the difference between good and evil, the difference between ungodliness and worldly desires and those desires that would be godly, right? So in 1 Kings 3.9, we see Solomon ask God, here's what he asks him, for the ability to discern good from evil. And this can seem kind of like a silly or a strange request, right? Because to some of us, because we would assume that it's obvious. Like Solomon has an audience with God. God says wild things to Solomon, like, what can I do for you? (laughs) Hold on, let me get my notepad out, right? Like, (laughs) woo! Uh, But here's what Solomon says. Lord, give me, please give me the wisdom, give me the discernment to understand the difference between good and evil, because who can rule these people of yours? This This is what was on Solomon's heart. This is... The fact that that's what he wanted, just a little tip, is why God was able to say to him, son, what can I give you, right? Because he already knew. Um, So that can seem kind of weird to us. Uh, Sometimes we think that the difference between good and evil should be obvious. So sometimes it is, right? Um, Should you rob a bank? You you can shake your head, do whatever you want. These ones should be easy. Should you rob a bank? No. Uh, Should you shoot innocent people? We're talking about very easy, good and evil questions here, okay? No. (laughs) Uh, Should you light buildings on fire that you know a bunch of people are in? This is not hard. I may not even need the Holy Spirit's help to figure that one out. I don't want to sound bold or, you know, overzealous, but I think I might be able to figure out the difference between good and evil on that one. Um, Those are really obvious, right? It's kind of like, just really, another example would be, If you're a man, you should never, ever sit with your back to a main door when you're in a public place because how are you going to know if something's popping off and how are you going to react? It's obvious. You should not do that. 
right? I think that's as obvious as you shouldn't rob a bank, right? You guys are on post everywhere. Pay attention to your surroundings, man. Okay. Uh, know the difference between good and evil, right? We think tactically. Okay. Uh, but some things aren't so obvious. Figuring out if this is a worldly lust, figuring out if this is an ungodly path, sometimes it's not as obvious, right? For example, should I buy that house? Should I go to that school? Are my motives pure as I'm weighing out these options? Something doesn't have to be blatantly sinful to be ungodly or fueled by worldly desires. That's why Solomon asked for God's help and wisdom to discern the difference. Because sometimes the difference is very, very subtle and hard to perceive. Uh, Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 10 that all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable. And the point he's saying there is, if you belong to Jesus, you should be focusing on expending your energy into things that are profitable. And he doesn't mean, you know, making those dead presidents. He means things that are profitable for the sake of the furthering of the gospel. Right? Amen. You're not excited about that, but we'll, hopefully we'll get to something exciting in a minute. Uh, some things are not as obvious. So um, I'll give you an example from my life recently, um, and it's left me very thankful for the help of the Holy Spirit in discerning good from evil and denying worldly desires. Um, I had something for sale online, and somebody sent me a message and offered to trade me said item for a motorcycle. And... It was a very nice motorcycle. It was just the kind I would like. And I have thought about the wonders of my very little bit of hair whipping in the wind in a motorcycle um, for quite a while. Um, I, I do want to take this opportunity to let you know that this, this hair is a lifestyle choice, okay? I can actually grow a beautiful head of hair for those of you that have wondered. I'll move it so that you can see in the light this line is not receding, okay? So I could have a faux hawk in one month if I wanted to, but I save money on shampoo. So um, yeah, I, I, bottom line is I've wanted a bike, and this was a cruiser, like just how I imagined it, and um, it was low miles, and everything about it looked really cool. And so I thought, okay, this is dangerous. <laughs> I could have this today. Um, and so I thought, okay, I know how to fix this. I said, "Hun, this guy wants to trade me a motorcycle." Figured, okay, this will. If anybody, if anybody's going to help me sort out worldly lusts and ungodly thinking, um, she'll she'll help me with this. And uh, her answer was, "I don't care. Go ahead and get it." <laughs> okay, that was not helpful. And now my fingers quivering as I'm about to try to, you know, message this guy back. Um. But I, I'll tell you guys, this is, I came to a moment where I, in a rare moment of wisdom for me, I, I realized this was a big enough decision that I needed to seek God's counsel, and I, I prayed about it, and I thought about it. Um, and I could have done it. I could have rode that motorcycle here today, and that would have been really fun. However, I had to, I had to weigh it out and see, is this permissible? Would it be sinful for me to have this motorcycle? No. There is no prohibition in the scriptures for me to have a motorcycle. Absolutely not. But I had, to, I had to think, is this profitable for me? Is this profitable for me in the light of what God has called me to do? 
Is it profitable for me in the light of the fact that he's given me a wife and two beautiful children to provide for? Is it profitable for, for the church that God has called me to be a leader in? Um, the additional risk, the, the time that comes along with every item like this that somebody owns. How much time would I be thinking about, man, I could go out and ride right now instead of having my face in God's word? And uh, so the end decision, not because I'm a good man, but because the Holy Spirit speaks to wretched men, is uh, I had to text a guy back and say, brother, I want your bike, but I'm not going to do it. And uh, I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit will help men who don't always have the right answer in and of themselves to discern worldly lusts from things that they should really have or need. Now, I need to make sure I tell you, it is in no way a sin for all people to have a motorcycle. Some of you may very well do quality ministry because you have a motorcycle. Uh, I don't know, and I'm not in any way laying that on you. What I'm saying is I came to a point where the scriptures didn't speak clearly to my decision. You ever been there before? And so I needed, <laughs> I needed the help of the Holy Spirit to make the right choice. And I really do believe that my desire for a motorcycle would have fell under the rubric of a worldly lust because it would have had very little, if any, gospel influence uh, and it wouldn't have helped me in any way to fulfill the mission that God's given me. And so I am thankful that the Holy Spirit helps in that process of discerning what is ungodly? What is a worldly lust? Uh, and I guess my point to you is to say, again, just remember, it's not always obvious. This wasn't a clean-cut deal. There's, Paul didn't forbid motorcycles in Romans, right? That would have been a lot easier if he did. You know, if he just added a thou shalt not ride two-wheeled vehicles. Boom, done. No question needed. But he didn't, did he? No. Thanks, Paul. Uh, but that was, a, that was a good experience for me to go through, and uh, the Lord knew that we'd end up in this section of Titus one week later, so praise God. Another interesting note is I actually met with a guy two weeks before that, and uh, before this opportunity had ever came up, and by the Spirit of God, through a conversation, he said to me, you should never own a bike, I'm telling you by the Spirit of God. And so um, I'm telling you that, that definitely factored in. I, I, I'll tell you, I still had to, you know, my, in my mind, I'm still trying to chalk. I want the bike, right? Let's, let me just tell you where I was at. I wanted the motorcycle. Did I make that clear? I wanted it. So the, the just two weeks ago, the Lord spoke through somebody else and said, you should never own a bike. But then this opportunity comes up, and I'm thinking, I got to know what he's talking about. <laughs> that was a coincidence, right? Uh, for sure. How could he know that? Well, yeah. Anyways, praise God. For the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, because he has more than I need. The book of James says, if I'll ask for wisdom, he'll give it. And uh, I believe, because of Solomon's example, that uh, if I'm going to ask God for anything, what I should ask him for is more wisdom and more, more discernment. And I'm just thankful that he does it. It's the only way we're going to have a chance whatsoever to actually walk out the lessons that grace teaches us. Because grace would teach us to deny ungodliness and to forsake worldly lusts. But we won't do it without the help of the Holy Spirit. You won't. You'd end up doing what you want to do. Okay. Um, the next, uh, next things we see here, it says, uh, living sensibly, righteously, and godly. So uh, I told you there was three things. Denying, 
that was denying uh, ungodliness, denying uh, worldly lust. The second thing is we see is living, and he tells us to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. <clears throat> We're still talking about the lessons that grace teaches us. Grace teaches us to deny. Grace teaches us to live in a certain way. So here's what he says, sensibly, righteously, and godly. We must live sensibly or soberly, uh, and, and that could be bracketed and understood to mean self-controlled. We need to live that way in regard to ourselves. We must be people of integrity who, when the doors are closed and no one is looking, act just the same in regards to holiness as we would standing in front of the whole assembly of God's people. We must live soberly in self-control. Integrity demands that I would respond the same way when none of you can see me as I would right now when all of you can. You get that? Uh, we must live righteously in regard to the people around us. We must live upright on mission. We must live upright and on mission out in the open where people can observe our lives because it matters. The gospel of Christ uh, is either propelled or detracted from by the way his followers walk it out. You understand that? Serious implications there. He told the bond servants, do this in such a way because in so doing you will adorn the doctrines of God. You will make them look beautiful and attractive. And so we must live righteously in regard to those around us. Uh, and we must live godly, which means to take God seriously, both as our creator and father, as our judge and king, but also as our ultimate example of love and holiness and goodness and every other virtue. We must be godly. We must take seriously the fact that God is who God is, um, and have a holy reverence and fear for him, but we must also take him seriously as the ultimate perfect example of all things that we should seek towards. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. It teaches us to live in light of the beautiful gospel, and it teaches us also to look. Let's read verse 13. It says, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Grace teaches us to look with eager anticipation for the glorious return of our Savior King. We should yearn for the day that He returns to make right all that has gone wrong because of sin. The question is, do you look forward with excitement to His promised coming? If not, there may be a problem. Here's a few of the Standard stumbling blocks that would cause somebody to think about the fact that Jesus has completely and totally, without a doubt, promised to return, and for that not to cause excitement in you. Here's a couple issues. You may know that you are not ready, right? The promise that Jesus is coming back is not something that you would look for, forward to with excited expectation if you're not sure whether or not you're on his team. And so today I would say to you, I love you, please get on his team, because he's going to win. And you're not going to do that. Remember the carrot. You're not going to do that by being better. You're not going to do that by going out here today and doing a few less bad things and a few more good things. You're going to do that today by coming to a place where you're willing to believe and trust in what the Bible says Jesus did. Jesus made a way where we could make no way. He lived a perfect life that you never could. Then he died in your place for your sins. He took the wrath of God so that you didn't have to. And then he rose from the grave. He was triumphant over death and sin, and hell, and because of that, we by faith can receive what it is he got in return, right? So he did all the work, he earns the reward, 
but he is willing to share it with us, not by us doing also what he did, but by us simply believing in faith that he did it. I don't understand why the deal is so sweet for us. I wouldn't have made it that easy on us. I don't think we deserve it. That's pretty clear, but this is what God did. And that's why it's really easy to worship him and serve him with every ounce of energy we have. This is why it's not surprising that Paul, understanding the truth of this beautiful gospel, says things like, I will pour myself out for the preaching and the furthering of this beautiful truth. Because there is nothing else on this planet or in all of eternity that will be worth energy and effort other than the preaching of the gospel. Amen. So if you're not ready today, I would appeal to you lovingly. Please trust in Jesus. He loves you. He's proved it. Please serve him today. It's what you were made for. So you might not be ready. You may be too attached to this world. I have heard people say things like, and I can understand the sentiment, I just hope I, hope I can get married before Jesus returns. Or I hope I can have kids before Jesus returns. Or I hope I can reach this certain point in my career before Jesus returns. Or I hope I can you know, go to this certain place on the earth before Jesus returns. There's some goal or there's some... Uh, desire that, and clearly something has got out of balance if that's the case, or, or we just don't understand what the actual promise is of his return, right? Because all of the things that trouble us, all of the things that make us ask difficult questions about how there could be so much pain and suffering in this world, all of the things that bring tears to our eyes will be completely and totally vanquished when the king of glory returns. His enemies will be made his footstool. And those that are with him will also stand upon them. We will stand next to him clothed in his righteousness. And every single thing that has ever gone wrong because of sin will be made right. And if something doesn't leap with anticipation inside of you when I describe that, you might be too attached to this world. There might, your loves might be out of order. Your affection may not be placed where it belongs. Jesus deserves all of that allegiance and all of that affection. There is, I, you know, guys, I, I don't, I don't want to sound overly harsh and, and like I'm, I'm some robot. I, it, it'd be really cool to walk my daughter down the aisle one day, right, and do that dance with her and, and see her in that dress, um, you know, and make sure the guy has such a holy fear of me that he won't look me in the eye. Um, all of that, that's exciting to think about, and that would be wonderful. And I want her to experience the joy of marriage and having her own children, of course. Um, I want to see my son grow up and, and do, do things that we could actually call exploits <laughs> for the sake of the gospel. I want to see him do more than I've ever even thought about doing and be passionate and serve Jesus. But, but all of that pales in comparison to the thought of Jesus coming and finishing what he started. And so none of those things should ever take away from my excitement at the thought. And that's, what's, that's what we're being told here. Grace teaches us to look with those eyes. Look for the blessed day. The blessed day. The return of our Savior King. The blessed day. The blessed the blessedness day, right? The most blessed. Ain't going to be a better day than that. That's the day. That's the day we're working towards. Amen. It's a day we're looking forward to. The third thing that uh, 
may detract from your excitement about that, that upcoming event, is that you may be distracted by all the confusion surrounding the issue. Um, and I'll just say this to you. I don't have time to get into all of it. I've done it in other sermons. Um, it's probably online. But uh, you could spend all of your time arguing about the details of, of how things are going to happen in the end. You could argue about being post-trib or mid-trib or no-trib. You could be premillennial, post-millennial, amillennial. But here's what I choose to focus on. You ready? He's coming. He's coming. There's a whole lot of other details that people are more sure about than they think they should be. There's a whole lot of things that people think they know that they probably don't really know. They like to squabble and fight about details that I'm not sure we could even really know. But here's what I'm sure of. Here's what's been made abundantly clear. He's coming. He's coming. And I'm told here that that grace should cause me to look towards that day with anxious expectation. And I am. He's coming. That's all I need to know. And here's what else I know. I know that every single day that goes by, I'm one day closer to when he's coming. You could try to get out a napkin and turn it over and draw yourself a chart, try to string some verses together and come up with some cockamamie thing that is absolutely opposite of what the word tells us, that we don't know the day or the hour. This is something that is in the mind of God himself. And anytime you presume to know stuff like that, you're a fool, right? I don't need to know the day or the hour. Here's what I know. He's coming. And every single day that goes by, I'm one day closer to him getting here. And that means I have that much more urgency for the sake of his gospel. That means I have that much more urgency about loving people. That means I have that much more urgency about being on this mission that he made me for. He's closer today than he was yesterday, and he'll be closer tomorrow. There is no time to waste. Paul said in another letter, make the most of your time, because the days are evil. I don't, some of you have just turned the news off, and I get it. The days are evil, right? And I realize that every generation before us has thought they were the ones that were going to see the return of Christ. And I'm not trying to fear monger, I'm trying to excite monger. Okay? Because the very worst thing that could happen is we live every single day in light of this verse that grace has taught us to live in an excited anticipation for the coming of our king, that we live every single day in light of that, that we live every single day on mission, full of love, and doing everything we possibly can to further this gospel message, and, 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 and it just happens to be that we die before he comes. What did you lose? No, all you did was be obedient. All you did was do exactly what was required of you by grace. Will we do this without the help of the Holy Spirit? No. Without the help of the Holy Spirit, we're going to be distracted. We're going to buy motorcycles. We're going to do, you know what I mean? We're just going to do whatever we think we want to do. We're going to get our, our, our eyes off of the focus of, of what matters most, and we're going to have our affections so tied to what's going on down here that we won't even think in a given day half the time about the fact that King Jesus could show up any moment. We'll walk by people with no urgency. We'll walk by people without a thought about their eternal destiny. That's what will happen, right, if we don't let grace instruct us in this way. If we don't let ourselves with excited, insatiable anticipation look forward to the coming of our glorious Savior. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. And the reality is, you could squabble over those details. Are we in the tribulation? What's going to happen? Is it before or after? Here's the bottom line. Those details that I don't think we can know for certain anyways, have no bearing on the commission given us by our king, right? 
He comes pre-trib, mid-trib, or post-trib. What are you called to do? Love God, love people, and make disciples. It's pre-millennial, it's post-millennial, it's amillennial. What are you called to do? Love God, love people, and make disciples. This, it's getting easier, isn't it? And I don't have the time to sit there with the chart and argue with you about it. Because there's somebody out here that doesn't know Christ, and if, if he came today, they'd be on the wrong team. So you can go over there with that mess. I got something to do. Right? Amen. And it allows me to not be just tangled up in all the mire and muck that comes along with that. And I can just be excited about the fact that no matter how bad the news looks, here's, here's, I, I swear to you this is how I sleep at night. He's coming. There are many, many times when whether it's details of the lives of, of those that I'm involved with personally or just the overall darkness we see in the world around us, there are many, many times if I did not have this assurance that he is coming, I would sit there and drive myself insane trying to figure out how to fix the problems or just in despair because I couldn't. But he is coming, dear ones. He's coming. And so we put our little heads on our pillows and we go to sleep because he's going to win. And we're on his team. If you're not today, please trust him. Come on over here. It's better. It might be harder, but it's better. Amen. Let's read verse 14. Uh, I'm going to read 13 again because it's so tied. Looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This redemption language, it conjures the idea, uh, and we see this throughout the New Testament, that Jesus bought us away from slavery to sin and to self. If uh, you were here last week, we talked about uh, the language above where um, Paul is instructing Titus how to talk to bond servants and kind of all of that. We talked about the fact that uh, none of that language, uh, we spent a lot of time working on why it is very clear that the Bible does not condone the institution of humans owning humans. That's not what's being said there. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the Old Testament says if you kidnap somebody and you're found with them, you should be executed, right? So it doesn't sound like a pro-slavery message. Um, but what we see here then, it, it could be kind of confusing, is then words like redemption, other places where language to describe us after Christ frees us, again, still as slaves. So that can be somewhat confusing. Let's work through that. Uh, so this redemption language, it conjures the idea that Jesus bought us away from our slavery to sin and to self. So the bad news is, right, that we were slaves to sin and thus separated from God. That's the bad news. The good news is that Jesus paid the price for our freedom. That's really good news. I didn't have, I didn't, I couldn't have paid the price. Couldn't have ponied up for it, right? He had to do it. He shed his precious, perfect blood, and that was what bought me away from my taskmaster, sin and death, right? So that's the good news. But you could be thinking, and you would be right, wait a minute. Doesn't Paul and James and Jude describe themselves as bondservants to God? Yes, a lot. And John calls us all bondservants of God at the beginning of Revelation. Yes, he does. You're doing really good on your Bible scholar. I'm glad you guys are bringing this stuff up. <clears throat> I can tell you've been in there. Uh, so here's the question. So, so how is Jesus redeeming us from the taskmaster of sin and self? How is that of any benefit if we just become slaves, uh, his slaves instead? 
How is that freedom? How do we use freedom language when we're saying, well, Jesus came and he redeemed us from the old taskmaster of death and sin and self. How, but, but then, right, Paul had gone through that conversion. He had been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Jude had been redeemed by the blood of Christ. James had been redeemed. John had been redeemed. And he's talking to redeemed people in Revelation when he says, you bond servants. So how is it, how is it freedom when we just switched masters? Right? We've gone from sin and death and slavery to that, and now we're slaves to God. How is, how is that okay? Well, um, how, how, is, how is that actually freedom? The problem is our definition of freedom. Follow me on this track. Freedom isn't really having the ability to do whatever I want to do. Would you agree with me that most of us, when we think about freedom, we think of it in those terms? If I am free, then I get to just do what I want to do. That's not actually freedom. Because the reality is, sometimes what I want to do is not the best thing for me. And sometimes what I want to do will lead me to much pain and hurt. And it will lead me back to my own self-made prison. Freedom is not just getting to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. Here's what true freedom is. Here's how freedom should be defined. Freedom is having the ability, with God's help, to do what I was made to do. Not what I always want to do, but free again to do what I was made to do. Because when I do what I was made to do, I'm going to have freedom and joy and purpose and not as many stumbling blocks in my way. Let me give you an example. Okay? Um, You guys know what a carrier pigeon is, right? Back in the day, before your cell phone, people used to tie a little message to a pigeon's foot and send it off. A lot of times they did it in uh, war zones, right? That's how they would transfer messages back and forth. Okay? Um, if you did, had no idea what a carrier pigeon was, I'm just going to lovingly encourage you to pick up a book. I, just, you know, they're cool. They have words and stuff and uh, that you learn from them. So, okay. Um, <clears throat> or, or, or at least Discovery Channel. I don't know. Um, so imagine with me a carrier pigeon, and imagine binding it up, uh, binding up its wings, right? So tying it up so that its wings can't function. You take that carrier pigeon, and uh, you, you bind it up, and you ask it to deliver a message 100 miles away and to do it quickly. The reality is that carrier pigeon was not made to walk long distances, was it? It's got little stubby, very thin legs. Its whole physiology was not designed to be a real fast walker. It's not what it was made to do. And so you're asking it to do something that in reality is going to be an impossible task. That carrier pigeon is not getting that message. If it gets there at all 100 miles away and and it doesn't just fall down from exhaustion because it's trying to do something it wasn't made to do, if it makes it there, it's going to take it a long time. He's going to have a hard way of it as he goes, right? It's it's impossible. Um, and, And this is what it was like for us when we were slaves to sin. We were trying to journey through this life. We were bound and we were restricted and not functioning the way we were supposed to. And that's a heavy burden and it leads to misery. That, that bird's not having a good day. When someone ties up its wings and says, I need you to take this message 100 miles, right? That's a bad day. Because you, you're not letting that bird function the way it was made to. You're not letting it, it's not free. It's having a hard time. By contrast, 
When Christ sets us free, we are no longer bound. We are no longer bound by selfishness. We are no longer bound by our propensity for sin. That binding that would be on our wings is taken off and we're allowed to fly. That's why Jesus can say things like, my burden is light, right? That's why it it is truly freedom to go from that that bound animal that is not allowed to function the way it was made to. I was, do you get it? I was made to worship God. I was made for this purpose. I was made to serve him in the only way I'm going to have joy in this life. The only way I'm going to be able to enjoy the journey of life is to be able to do what I was made to do. And aside from God, every single person that is without the freedom that comes in being a bondservant to Christ Jesus, the one who loves them, they are a bird with its wings tied down. And so what I'm saying to you is, it is absolutely the truest form of freedom to be set loose to do what it is you were made to do. And it is only through Christ redeeming us, purchasing us away from the one who would bind us and hold us down, that he can set us free. Yes, we still do have a master. Yes, we do still have a job to do. We still have a message to carry, do we not? But, but it's going to be joyous, man. That carrier pigeon, when it's flying, when it can do what it was made to do, when it can do its job the way it was designed to do its job, it's having fun. What's it doing, man? It's flying, soaring around, dodging bullets if it's in a war zone. Hallelujah, he's having a good day. His wings aren't tied down by stupid stuff. That's why it's freedom. That's why me being able to say, I am a bondservant of Christ, I can have a smile on my face because I am free to do Not what I think is best all the time, but what I was really made to do, which is to serve and to follow and to worship the God who made me. Amen. I think it's interesting the language that Isaiah uses in the end of chapter 40 of the book that bears his name. He says this, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. You see that? That's why it's freedom to be a bondservant of Christ. Because even though, yes, he is my master, even though, yes, I may not do what I want to do all the time, I will run and not grow weary. I will stay on mission but not grow faint because I will not be left to my own devices. I will not be left to my own ignorance. I will not be left with only the tools that I have, the energy that I have. I'll run and I'll not grow weary. Why? Because I'm super? No, but because he is. Because he will come and indwell me and I will be able to draw from his never-ending well of strength. And when I don't have enough love to give anymore, I'm able to draw from his and he'll fill me back up. I will run and not grow weary. I will soar like an eagle with his wings untied. If I'll trust the Lord. Will you trust the Lord today? Will you trust him? Will you be free today in the truest sense of the word? I'm inviting you to freedom. Please, trust him. Verse 15 says, uh, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Uh, The sinful tendency in us is to uh, bristle at the word authority, Um, but it's it's not a curse word. The people, uh, when Jesus was walking the earth, they were amazed at his teaching. It says, because he taught with authority. And he taught his men to do the same. They, part of what he was doing was setting an example for them. 
He taught them to teach with authority uh, because when you are a carrier of the truth of truths, you can teach with authority, right? And it's not being cocky. Here's why. Uh, Jesus taught his men to teach with authority. They taught those that they discipled to do the same and so on and so on and so on, right? This is Paul who had learned from the other apostles and from Jesus talking with him personally, teach with authority. So then now he's instructing Titus, a guy that he led to Christ and was discipling into a leader. He's saying, now you teach with authority. And when you teach someone else how to be a leader, tell them to teach with authority. And on and on and on it goes, right? Men and women of God walk with authority, but it, it is always the authority of a humble servant representing their powerful and sovereign master. I can walk with authority and speak with authority into issues of this life, not because I have all of this wisdom in and of myself, but because I represent one who does. I have a master who is sovereign, and he can back up absolutely everything he said. And as a matter of fact, the day's coming when everyone's going to know. And that's why I'm real happy about the song we sang at the beginning, which we did not in any way coordinate with the message, but the Holy Spirit just is real and stuff happens like that. Amen. Right? Hallelujah. He is sovereign. He does rule. He does reign. And the day is coming when absolutely everyone will acknowledge that. You will either acknowledge his sovereignty as his friend and child, or you will acknowledge his sovereignty as his enemy. I would lovingly call for you, be free today. And trust in Christ so that when you think about the day that he will return, you can have anxious anticipation and excitement instead of dread. May we be a people who are joyfully, may we be a people who joyfully accept instruction from the grace by which we are saved. May we be a people who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, deny the pitiful trappings of temptation. People who live in a manner worthy of the one who called us. And people who look forward with insatiable expectation to the return of our gracious King. May we be a people who rejoice in the ability to serve our perfect Father, knowing that this is true freedom. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we love you. We thank you that you reign and rule. We thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us from slavery to self and to sin. We thank you, Lord, that we've been set free in the truest sense of the word. We thank you for the promised help of your Holy Spirit that you delivered that day of Pentecost and has continued on. I thank you that today, Lord, that your spirit, your presence does not dwell in a temple made with hands, but that you have made us your dwelling place, that you go with us, that you lead us, and that you guide us. I thank you, Lord God, that you teach us through grace and you instruct us, you give us discernment by your Holy Spirit, that you allow us to understand good from evil, even when it's not clear. Sometimes it's, it's difficult to sort out, Lord, but I thank you that you always know, and I thank you that if we are willing to humbly request of you, that we would have discernment and wisdom, that you are... You are faithful to give that. And I believe it blesses you when your children ask for it. It shows that we trust you. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for your faithfulness in answering those prayers. We thank you, Lord, that we are no longer slaves to sin. We thank you that we have been made free to do exactly what it is you made us to do. Thank you, Lord, that we can look forward with anticipation to the end of the experience that we're in right now. This world is cursed. It is retching. 
as, as a woman in birth, as, as somebody that's contracted food poisoning, we see it all around. The very earth itself is, is lurching because it's not the way it's supposed to be. And Lord, we all have this sense. We know, we can tell. Things are not right. Things are not as they should be. And Lord, we, the only way we can rest, the only way we can find peace is the promise that you are aware you are with us in the midst of all this difficulty, and that one day this difficulty will come to an end. This is our great hope, Lord. We look forward to it with anxious expectation. Lord, the only thing that stops us from being overly focused on that day is the fact that you've given us a mission in the meantime. And so, Lord God, we ask that every single day of our lives, that every single hour, Lord, this constant remembrance and understanding would drive and motivate what we do that all things will come to an end. And so, Lord, let us live in light of that. Lord, help us not to be selfish. Help us, Lord, to pay attention to those around us. Help us, Lord, to be eternally minded. Help us to think about the fact that you are coming and that those who have not put faith and trust in you, that they will declare that you reign, but they'll be on the wrong side of it. Lord, let that, let that cause compassion to stir in our hearts. Lord, let that affect the way we live, the way we speak. Help us, Lord, that in every moment and all the time, that these things would, they would be with us. Lord, help us to understand that to be on mission doesn't mean that there is no leisure. I thank you, Lord, that you are glorified when your people rest. So help us, God, not to get that out of balance, but help us, Lord, to realize that even in our rest, that our mindfulness should be upon uh, the things of your kingdom. And uh, we thank you for the opportunity to do that. All of these things are for your glory. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We worship you and honor you. We praise you. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.